Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Barbara Todd. Then I took this advanced first aid class and I was like, oh my God, I'm kind of good at this. And I felt so powerful having actual tools to help people. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to be a nurse. That and more. But first, in this episode, we consider something all of us have in common, death. We're all touched by the transformation of life in death. And sometimes our stories about it are tragic, like in Liz Headland's story, Expiration. And of course, I'm devastated without her. And every time I think of that night, I have that same imploding ache in the depths of my chest. But she's not in pain anymore. And sometimes they're beautiful, like in Lee True's story, the light that burns twice as bright. And then I kind of felt like every single one of these moths is someone's daughter, someone's son. Maybe the message is we're constantly flitting into and out of existence. Creatures are moving in and out of life all the time. And they can even be hilarious. He took a good dick out of this world. He took a good dick out of this world. He took a good dick out of this world. And I said, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Wait. Did this bitch just say what I think she said? That, of course, was T.S. Madison with her story, The Eulogy. And I know that you or someone you know has a good story about death or grieving. So pitch it to us. Just go to risk show.com slash submissions to find out how. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. 
Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Tung behind me now, singing about how death is the new sex, how everybody's talking about it. And that's what we're doing in this episode. We're calling There at the End. This episode is a part of our new Grief Stories series, stories old and new, tackling the age-old issue of the universal human experience that to open your heart to life, you must also open your heart to death. In this episode, we're going to hear from just one storyteller, Barbara Todd. Barbara told this story at a Capital Storytelling show back in April that was co-produced by our dear friends at Story Collider. But stick around after the story because the rest of the episode will be a conversation between death doula Angela Shook and Barbara Todd discussing Barbara's story. So now let's get to it. Here is Barbara Todd, recorded live in Sacramento with a story she calls Forgiveness. Thank you. When I was 10 years old, my family moved to a small town on Vancouver Island in the hopes of fulfilling my dad's dream of owning a house right on the ocean. My story begins three years later. I am 13 years old and I'm watching my dad look out our window at the ocean with his eyes full of tears, whispering goodbye. Two years before this moment, he had been diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. He became sick very quickly. He was only 37 years old. He wasn't able to work uh, because he was so sick, so my mom had to work extremely long hours in order for us to not lose our home on the ocean. Because of that, my dad and I got to spend a lot of time together, talking about his past, my future, and how overwhelmingly sad we were that he was not going to be a part of it. It was becoming clear that my dad was going to die soon, and my mom was terrified at the idea of him dying at home but he did not want to leave the house. She'd asked the doctor to come to the house to help convince him that he should go to the hospital, that he would be more comfortable there in his final days. He reluctantly agreed and slowly said goodbye to everything, including the ocean that he loved so much. The next 10 days were a blur. We lived pretty far from the hospital, so my mom was only able to get us over there every day, every other day, or maybe even every three days. When we did go, it was just so hard to see my dad in that hospital bed, just filled with a combination of anger, fear, and sadness. One day, my mom had picked me up at school and dropped me off at the hospital and then carried on back to work. And I remember walking into the room and my dad had a cookie for me. And his eyes brightened, he smiled as I came into the room. But as he handed me the cookie, his eyes filled with tears and he began to cry. I took the cookie, I did not want to disappoint him. 
and I ate the cookie, but I couldn't even taste it. I could hardly swallow it. As we entered the second week, it had been a few days since we'd been up to see him, and my mom promised us that on Saturday we would spend the whole day with him, and we'd take a picnic lunch, and it was going to be great. Unfortunately, Friday night, late, we received a call that he'd taken a turn, and we needed to come to the hospital right away. I really couldn't believe my ears when I heard my mom say, is he asking for us? And the nurse said, well, no, I think he's pretty much in a coma at this point. And my mom said, just let us know when he's gone. I was devastated. I immediately pictured my sad dad in that hospital bed alone. And I turned to my mom and I was gonna say, mom, what are we doing? but I could see just how completely overwhelmed she was, and so I stayed silent. A few hours later, we got the call, and he had passed. Every single night in my teen years, I talked to my dad. I would go to bed, and I would tell him about my day, and I would end by saying how sorry I was that he was alone. I just needed to know, I just wished to know somehow that he could forgive us, forgive me. Also during my teen years, I was trying to figure out what my next chapter was going to be. I was experimenting with different ideas for my career. I took some drama classes and thought about maybe being an actress, not wasn't well, gonna be me, uh, but I thought about being a teacher. And then I took this advanced first aid class and I was like, oh my God, I'm kind of good at this. And I felt so powerful having actual tools to help people. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to be a nurse. I was 15 years old. I'm like, I'm applying to nursing school right now. And I did, and I got accepted. I started nursing school uh, this September following high school graduation. This RN program was amazing. It was a hospital-based diploma program, and we lived in dorms right across the street from the hospital, basically on the hospital campus. Our first year was a lot of bed-making, vital sign-taking, assessing, care plan writing, pretty straightforward stuff. But at the end of that first year, I was assigned a six-week practicum on the palliative care unit. This unit was filled with people who were at the end of their life, and most of them were a lot older, but there was one very young patient, Jane. She became my primary patient. She was 36 years old, and she had a very aggressive form of lung cancer. This cancer grew so quickly, the tumor actually burst through her skin, and she just was so angry. She was so, didn't want to believe that this was happening to her and her emotions were so familiar to me. It was this combination of anger, fear, and sadness. Jane had a 16-year-old daughter. I was only 18 at the time, but yet I felt so much older than her daughter. Over the next few weeks, I really got to know Jane and her loving family. She had her sisters and her daughter coming to visit. Most days, she would stay in bed and I would read to her or just do anything I could to help her feel comfortable. And then one day I went into work and she looked brighter and she said, you know, I feel really good today. I think I'm going to get up in the chair. And I said, yeah, let's do it. 
So we got her up into the chair, kind of getting her organized. And she said, you know, I really want to read a newspaper. So I was like, let me go get a paper. That's great. So I step out into the hallway, and the phone's ringing at the nursing station. So I answer it, and it's her family, and they're asking if they should come visit. And I said, yeah, today's actually a really good day. Jane's feeling good. She's up in the chair. Come on down. They said, great, we'll be right down. I walked down the hallway to the newspaper rack, got the newspaper, and headed back to the room. As I entered the doorway, Jane coughed, a loud cough, and was looking down at her hand. I caught eyes with her, and she looked terrified. I looked in her hand, and there was a massive blood clot. I yelled for help and quickly started moving Jane back into her bed as she began coughing up copious amounts of blood. The nurses ran into the room and brought the suction equipment and the basins, and I just sat on the bed with Jane and held her hand. And between the coughing and the sputtering, she said, help me. She looked terrified. I said to her, Jane, the other nurses are getting the doctor. I'm not going anywhere. We knew that we were not going to stop this. This was going to be the end. But she didn't know that. And so I held her hand, and I just suddenly had this overwhelming feeling that whatever was next for her was going to be okay if she could just let go. So I just looked at her with my most reassuring tone, and I said, Jane, you're going to be okay. And she looked back at me and closed her eyes, and then she died. We all sat in silence for a few moments, and then suddenly I remembered that her family is going to be here any minute. I turned to my preceptor nurse and said, her family's coming. They're going to be here soon. She said, oh my gosh, get out to the nursing station. Stop them. You need to tell them what's happened. We're going to stay in this room, and we're going to get her cleaned up and get ready for them to come. I'm like, oh my God. I head out to the nursing station, and I'm going to sit down and take a deep breath, but I can't because there they are at the end of the hallway. They look happy. They're so excited to come see her. I start walking toward them, and I can see that their faces are changing because they can see my face. And I realize, like, I've got to get this out. I've got to tell them. So I just kind of blurted it out. I said, I am so sorry. Something's happened, and Jane has died. I watched their face change. We were all in shock. I mean, just a few moments before, I was bringing her a newspaper, and now she's gone. They started to cry and hugged each other, and then they pulled me into their hug, and we're all hugging. And then suddenly her sister steps back, and she says, oh my gosh, were you with her when she died? And I said, yes, yes, I was. I was holding her hand. I was with her the whole time. And she said, oh my gosh, she was so scared. Thank you so much for not letting her be alone. And suddenly, the picture of my sad dad in that hospital bed, he was no longer alone. I now pictured him holding the hand of a nurse. And in that moment, I was suddenly able to forgive myself. And over the last 30 years, I've had the honor and privilege of being at the bedside with many people as they pass when their families can't be there. And each time, I feel even closer to my dad, and I know that he would be very proud of me. Thank you.
and it's part of the you know the way storytelling works. Your image of storytelling is around a campfire or around a fireplace, yeah. or maybe um, you know with a bedside lamp on. There's always a sense of a, of a, a clearing of light and then just sort of darkness all around you. That's the nature of telling a story that you're creating a little clearing. Um, but then what happens at the end of life? Uh, in an ideal world, would be like what happens at the end of a book or a, or a movie that that story is wound up, that it has some sort of meaningful conclusion. Fatally human, we hover in the world. Fatally someone, we flounder in the dark. Take hold of another. Howdy, Risk fans. This is friend of the show, Adam Griffin. I'm not only somebody who tells stories about masturbating gorillas, I'm also a life coach with Atomic Griffin Coaching. Coaching gives clients the opportunity to think what they've not thought, say what they've not said, dream what they've not dreamed, and create what they've not created. Dave Ellis. If you'd like to make a meaningful change in your life, whether that means breaking a bad habit like smoking, something I gave up and Jesus fucking Christ was that hard, or making a great habit like exercising regularly. I've run not one, but two marathons, not in the same year. Or a third thing like managing your time better or taking some of the power out of that inner critic that says things like, what the fuck are you doing, you stupid idiot? <clears throat> Working with a life coach like me can help. To learn more about what it would be like for us to work together, set up a free discovery session with me. Just go to atomic-griffin.com. That's A-T-O-M-I-C hyphen G-R-Y-P-H-O-N.com to book that free session. Attention risk fans! Use code RISK, that's R-I-S-K, when you book your free discovery session and get 10% off your first coaching package. Atomic Griffin Coaching. Let's unlock your limitless potential. We're back. All of your lifetime's calling. Blood on the floor and birds on the ceiling. This is Risk. And again, this is Tung behind me now from their concept album. Tung presents Dead Club all about what this episode is all about. Our audio editor, John LaSala, would probably put tongue songs on every episode of this series if he could. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Barbara Todd again, but this time discussing her story with Angela Shook, who is a death doula. But first, I want to remind you that the only way we're able to bring you such meaningful content is because of you. You make this happen with your donations and support, especially through Patreon. In fact, one of our patrons named Alicia Farber just wrote to us, I'm a Patreon subscriber and I wish I could do more. What you all do is important and appreciated. Thank you for your vulnerability and for giving these important stories a platform. Alicia, thank you. If all of our listeners supported us with just a little whatever they could, 
we'd be in a lot better shape. But for now, we are keeping our head above water. And for as long as we're doing that, we're going to continue bringing you important stories and <laughs> ridiculously funny ones, too. Now, Barbara's story was told at Lisa Cantrell's Capital Storytelling Show out in Sacramento. And you can also find them at CapitalStorytelling.com. But it was co-produced by Story Collider. Story Collider focuses on stories about how science can help us discover how weird and wonderful it is to be human. Check out their archives at storycollider.org. Now, the new voice you're about to hear belongs to Angela Shook, the owner of Dragonfly End of Life Services. Angela is also an instructor for the End of Life Doula Professional Certificate Program and the Companion Animal Doula Program, that's a death doula for pets, at the University of Vermont. So here is Angela now in conversation with today's storyteller, Barbara Todd. That's that one point where we should be allowed to, to forgive things that need forgiving, to close things that need closing, like just, just to, to find a sense of authorship. And of course, what happens is the opposite normally, that, that person becomes like a bit part, like a cameo. All of the My name is Angela Shook, and I'm a death doula, and I just had the opportunity to listen to Barb's story, and Barb's here with me today to talk about her experiences. Hi. And not only as a death doula, but as a daughter, and as somebody who loves their father, listening to the story touched me deeply on so many different levels. Throughout this conversation, all I heard was this deep love of a daughter for her father and how she wished his death would have been a little bit different and maybe a little bit better. And what I've heard from that is how she changed her whole life and how her whole life was affected by what she went through. It's beautiful to me on so many different levels. Working in death all the time and and being a death doula, I find that most people who are drawn to this work come to it in a very similar way that Barb did, because either she was affected by a death that went really wrong or really right, but whatever it was, that's what brought her to this work. And I find that a lot with death doulas. We find that uh, we came to this work because either we were so profoundly affected positively or negatively by a personal death that affected us, it made us want to either advocate for a better death for others, or at least be part of it for others. And also, I think what I hear from Barb's story is, we don't want anyone to die alone. Mm-hmm. And that really changed the trajectory of her life. So, as I said at the beginning, it, it affected me on two levels. I've listened to the story probably 17 times now, and what oh I hear gosh. is, this woman loved her dad so much. 
That is true. That is true. No, I really appreciate your um, perspective and you got me tearful immediately as soon as we started talking uh, because it is true. And, you know, it's like that, gosh, that was 40 years ago, but it feels very fresh. I can get back there in a moment and my logical adult mind can, you know, rationalize everything, but there's a little small piece of me that's still 13 and can be right back in that moment in an instant. But I think it's fascinating because I think you're right. Um, when I first told this story, someone from the audience was sort of frantically trying to get to me after I came off the stage. And my story had changed everything for her because she hadn't been able to be with her dad. It was fairly fresh. And um, by my realization that I'm very confident that there was a nurse with my dad, she suddenly had that idea as well. And it gave her just a sense of peace. And it was just interesting because it kind of felt like she was meant to be there that night with me, you know, and, and if that's the only person that heard the story and, and found some peace in that, then fantastic. You know, that's, I guess that's why we do true storytelling is just to share and hope that it connects with somebody. I think there's a lot to be said that you find the teachings that you need in the time that you need them. You could hear the same story at a different point in your life and it wouldn't have made the same impact. You might have said, oh, wow, what a beautiful story. That's lovely. But if it didn't impact you the same way, it, it, it depends on where you are in your life and what you've gone through. Yeah. But I do think that like with what you do as a nurse now, like if your dad would have lived longer, if your dad mm -hmm. would have been healthy, what would your trajectory would have looked like now? How different would your life be? I think about that all the time. I honestly am not sure that I would have been a nurse because it's, as you said, it's those experiences that pulled me in that direction. Um, I think when I was much younger, I thought I would be a teacher. Um, I also moved from Canada to California as a nurse, and that changed my whole trajectory as well. I found, you know, met my husband, had my children here. I still live in California. My family is still in Canada. And I think none of that would have happened. I mean, you know, it's just interesting how life takes you on these twists and turns and you are who you are because of these events and you can't really look back and almost wish it different because then everything would be different you know absolutely how did you so when you if you don't mind me asking how do you become involved with a family and a patient or a person to help them at the end of their life how do they find you how do they know you exist a few different ways. Um, when I first started in this path that was similar to where you started, I, I had a, a death that affected me and my family very dramatically. And it changed the way I looked at death. I used to be so scared of dying. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up being so fearful of dying, like having panic attacks, thinking about dying. And to think, like, if I could ever look at my little girl self and say, okay, in 30 years, you're going to spend your whole life talking about death and dying, I'd be like, absolutely not. Wow. Um, I was wow. so scared of it. But I had an experience with um, a family member who I wasn't close to, who I actually had kind of a, a painful relationship with. Um, but at the end of his life, I was there, um, and I, I got to understand that there's healing yes. at that point, and I didn't know that before. I didn't know that there was this level of you could love somebody and um, 
not forgive them, but still accept and love and find healing at that point. And it changed the way I looked at death and dying from being a scary thing to maybe just a transition thing, a transformational thing. Um, so I just got really into diving into that experience and got into hospice and got into uh, reading everything I could and spending time with the dying and and just found that that happened for a lot of people, not just me, that there was a lot of grace to happen at what's supposed to be the saddest time. Um, and what happened is the more I started talking about it, the more other people started talking about it too. Because in our culture, a lot of people don't talk about death that and dying. That's very and true. And they don't want to talk about it. They, they, it's, we don't even say that person died. We said they passed or we lost them. You know? And so when I started talking about death all the time, <laughs> a lot of people were kind of like, ooh, weird. But the people who needed me, the people who needed to talk about death and dying, the people who were going through it found me mm. through talking about it. So I didn't, I didn't really promote it. I didn't go looking for it. It was just the more I started talking about it, the more the people found me. And so within my community, some people were like, you know, I just lost my dad or my dog just died and I'm really struggling or I just got diagnosed with this chronic illness and I don't know how to deal with it. So to answer your question in a long way of answering yeah. it, at the very beginning, it wasn't that I went looking for or I didn't know how people found me. It was just because people needed to talk. And the mm -hmm. more I was talking about it, they started talking to me. Um, so a lot of people at the very beginning were friends and families and community members that knew me. And then from word of mouth, people started reaching out. So... Now what I find happens is that uh, I'll get an email or a phone call from somebody who says, hey, I know that you like to talk about death. Hmm. Or I know that you can talk about death. And I've got this going that's on in my life. That's probably more like it. You can. Can you help me? You yeah. can. So um, that's how it usually starts now is sometimes it's um, an email says, hey, I, I, I know that you do this and I need some help. Or through one of the directories that I'm on with end-of-life work. Or sometimes I'm at the grocery store. <laughs> wow. <You laughs> and just... somebody says, hey, you helped one of my friends. Or I know that you've talked about this before. Can you help me with it too? Uh, so it's it's never been a push-it-out-there kind of thing. It's just started talking yeah. about it. And, I mean, you probably are helping – I mean, the whole family unit, you know, you're helping the person, but that's what I think I've found as I've gone through it is like, just everybody's at such a different place. And if you find that a person who is dying has really come to terms with it and they are actually okay, oftentimes the family aren't because it's, that scares them and, it, and it's hard for them to um, realize that that person is actually accepting this, this situation. And then you have the opposite where the person is not wanting to believe it and the family is there and that's a very uncomfortable position. And it's so unusual almost to find a family and a person who's passing all at the same place on the continuum. Very rare. Absolutely. And when you do, it's so beautiful, but it's so hard to get everybody simultaneously to the same place. I mean, it almost never happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I was thinking about this recently. Uh, I 
Probably. I've been, I've been doing, I've been a death doula for almost seven years now. And I think I've only had three clients reach out to me that were actually the ones that were heard that were dying. Oh, wow. Usually it's the, the caregivers. It's the family who says that, hey, we could use a little support here or We've never gone through this, and we don't even know where to start. Or hospice recommended you, or but it's mm-hmm. the family coming who are saying that we want support either for our loved ones or they're just they're floundering and they need help. Very seldom is it the dying person who reaches out and says, "Hey, my family needs help." <laughs> my fa- or I need help, or yeah, I, I need help, or, or I'm on my own here and I want some help. Or can you walk me through this? So it's interesting to see like how people come to this. It's it's not um, it's not common to get the, the dying person to ask for help. For the most part, wow. they are looking to help their family. The what of my favorite and probably one of my most uh, impactful clients was a birth doula. And oh, wow. when she was diagnosed with um, a, a, a terminal illness, she reached out and said, you know, I spent a lot of time helping people come into this world, and now I need help getting out. And she reached out to me personally. And that's one of the few that I've had. It's, it's almost always the caregiver, the family who reaches out first. Wow. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, that's so interesting with the birth doula and that connection of the beginning and the end of life. And in my story, my, um, you know, my family, this was 1983-ish, 83 or 84, and nobody was talking to us about end of life. And my mom, um, you know, we we had our home. She was working very hard to have us you know, be able to keep our home. My brother and I, at that point, we were 13 and 15. And um, my dad was so very, very sad and did not want any of this to be happening. And honestly, my dad was sort of that glue person in a family where all of my mom's brothers, like our family, my dad was just such, everybody's important and everything. My dad was really just one of those people that was so central and nobody could imagine life without him. And so they didn't want to talk about it, but he wanted right. to talk. And so, you know, I can recall I'd be, my brother and I'd be watching TV and he would just turn and look at me on the couch and start to cry. And I would, what, what's happening? And we're watching TV and he would just say, I just can't believe I'm not going to be here to walk you down the aisle or those right. kinds of things because he was feeling it all and he wanted us to feel it all with him. And he wanted to be to know that we were going to miss him profoundly. But for my mom, day to day, you you can't live in that every day because you've got to go to work. You, you know, you've got to go to school. You've got life will keep going after. And I think it became this tension um, because I mean he was the love of her life. I mean, like this was devastating for her to to be then alone. And then honestly, she, we've her and I have talked a lot and she really felt like nobody was helping her know what to do. And, right. you know, even at the hospital, uh, when he was finally in the hospital at the end, um, she just felt like nobody was really educating her or helping her know what the right thing to do was. And so I have to look back. And, you know, it's that thing where you did the best you could with what you knew then. Now you Absolutely. know more, so now you'll do better. And that's um, where, you know, my mom actually hasn't heard the story because, she knows it. We lived it. But I, I right. and with true storytelling, you know, you're telling it from your perspective 
only. Like I can only tell you how I felt and what was going on for me. And that was a little bit hard because I, I didn't want any listener to feel harshly toward my mom because she was truly doing the best she could. And she didn't have a death doula or anybody, right. anybody honestly helping her. And our family's method of commu- of uh, coping was just to not deal with it, you know, not... And my dad was essentially begging everybody to let him know how much they were going to miss him. Like he wanted, you know, and it was just such a challenging time. And so I kind of feel like, like you say now, it's that when I have been able to help, you know, my sister-in-law passed um, at 49 of breast cancer, I was able to help make sure at the end that she was in a comfortable setting, the family around her, people were able to say what they wanted to say. I just felt like this mission to make sure it was as good as we could possibly have it be it was hard. It was awful. But um, that's, it's just people don't know what to do. They need you to sort of help them and tell them what's okay. And, and really, there's nothing that's not okay. But, you know, kind of like reassure them that they're allowed to speak and say what they want. And uh, yeah, it's just I think your role is so important because it is uncharted water for most people. But yet we're all going to go through it. I mean. Right. It's like the most universal thing. Like it's right. the one thing that we will all have in common and all do. But you still almost need a tour guide for it the first time because you don't know what you don't know. And I love what you said about your dad because, you know, I, I've sat at the bedside, as you have too, with so many people. And it's not about, uh, oh, gosh, I wish I would have worked more. I wish my house was nicer. I didn't get that Porsche I wanted. True. It's, it's like, how am I going to be remembered? Did I make a difference? Did did I impact their lives? I was in it as long as I wanted to be. You know, they don't want to be forgotten. And that's kind of what your dad was saying, right? Like, let's yeah. live all of this right now. And I want to feel all these emotions with you right now as I only had this time to do it. Exactly. It's funny, he was so concerned that I would grow up well, and he would have these deep conversations with me at 11 and 12 years old that I just couldn't, I mean, I'm like, ah, but he's like, I want you to remember this later. And it was just, he knew what was coming. And he, where some people I think are in denial and they don't want to believe that that, that that's really terminal, the situation is going to end. He fully understood it. And that's actually sort of, as I was talking about that continuum, that's what kind of made it hard. Because he was there and nobody wanted to be there with him because they, right. I just, ugh, I just wish that we all could have sat together and just talked more, you know? And you did though, you know, by him even sharing it and you remembering it now and talking about it now, you are experiencing that and you are talking about all the things in your experience, the things that he wanted to. Mm-hmm. It might not have been in that moment, but he sure gave it to you. It's still there. And yeah. I'm really glad that you brought up your mom because I thought about that too a lot, listening to your story. Because a a lot of your conversation and your story was you felt like you had to forgive yourself Mm. because you weren't there with them at the actual moment. I get that. That would be hard. And you've done that for so many other people. That's kind of, you can give them that. You know, what a grace it is to know that somebody was loving on your person, even if you didn't get to be the person to do it. But you felt like you had to forgive yourself for something that you had no control over. That took me a long time, too, to kind of recognize. Honestly, when my um, sister-in-law passed away, my children were 13 and 15. So when my dad had passed, I was 13, my brother was 15. And it was in that moment, as I was with them and looking at my 13-year-old son and thinking, what 
what would I expect of him, you know? Right. And suddenly I was like, well, wait a second, that was me, you know? And and it did help me see that, you know, you're a teen, you're a child, you know, and, and what could you do? But I did feel, oh my gosh, yes, it's strange. It's strange how you think. You put that on yourself yeah. too, you yeah. know? And, and you don't have a lot of control when somebody is dying. You don't have a lot of empowerment. And you probably really wanted <laughs> some you know. control of it. And I think some people honestly are, are very afraid of being some with somebody at the end of life. And oh, sure. what's interesting for my mom, she was actually with her mom at the end of her life. And she called me and said, I get it now. I, I wish we had been there because I think everybody was just afraid, you know, and afraid of what was going to happen and really not wanting it to happen. And maybe if it's not like an unrealistic, but if we're not there to witness it, maybe it's not happening, but it is. Right, a little bit of that denial. Yeah. I thought about that a lot listening to your story, that I could hear your mom trying to keep working and keep things going and also protecting you a little bit. But then I remember one of the things that struck me was that your dad didn't want to leave the house. Mm -hmm. He wanted to stay by the water where he was, but your mom was kind of adamant that didn't happen. Was that hard for you to reconcile between the two of your parents? Like they had such different wants and desires at that time. Yeah, definitely. But I also understood her fear of if we were to come home and he was to have passed. Like that was her fear is that one of us, my brother or I, would come home and find him dead. And what would that do to us? And so she, again, was being very protective did you see that as protective then, or do you see that as protective now? Like at the time, were you um, kind of like a little like, I want to, I want dad to have what he wants, and I want to be with dad. Did that kind of struggle? I, actually, with you I think I probably did appreciate her protecting us. I okay. think I did because we couldn't have known what what she was protecting sure. us from, and and I did have a fear. There was a lot of time when my mom was working that I would be the first one to come home from school, uh-huh. and I'd be the first one to see my dad. And he would say to me, if you ever come home and I'm in the bathroom and I don't answer, you're going to call your mom and you're going to call an ambulance. And I mean, so every day I would come home from school looking through the window to see if I could see his head in his chair. And if, you know, one, you know, one time I come home and his head wasn't in his chair and I was panicked, complete panic and he was okay. And so I think my mom probably was watching me. Get that. And just be like, you know what? We're not doing this. Like, he's going to go to the hospital. What an act of grace it was then. It might have felt like, hey, I want to hang out with Dad, but it was such an act of grace and love and protection that she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole thing. I mean, there's just so many ways to come at this. And it's like, you just have to truly do the best you can and educate, too. Like, I think that's what I really appreciate about what you're doing is that as you said, you're sort of a tour guide and you've, most people haven't done this and you do have to learn or be open and figure out what is making you uncomfortable about the whole process at the end of life. And, and some of it you may not be able to resolve and that's going to be okay and people will forgive you for that. But what you could, you know, push yourself a little bit and learn and kind of simmer in the uncomfortableness of it all, because there's something about that end, that very end that is just unexplainable. And it's a truly a gift to be there at that moment. It's, it's a feeling, it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's hard. sacred. It is. And as sort of scary as it could maybe be in what you're imagining when you're actually there, it's not scary at all. It's, you just sort of give yourself over to it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot about what you said about being with Jane mm-hmm. at her end of life. Like, what a gift. It really was. As sad as it was and how quick it changed. And to go from all of that and to turn around and for everything that you went with to be the one to share with her family, she's gone. You really have gone through the full spectrum of both sides of what it's like to be the anticipatory grieving to grieving to sitting in that space with somebody else and sharing that grace with them. And I think about Jane's family a lot since I've listened to your story and all I keep thinking about is what a comfort Mm. you must have been to them, how much it must have meant to them to see you and to know that you were with them. I think about that too, you know, that how much their um, gratitude, I mean, it truly changed me as a person and as a nurse and as a uh, my whole trajectory because I mean I will never forget the moment I mean they were just so grateful and honestly they were afraid to be with her at the end so the fact that that moment had passed but they were kind of okay with that and they were just grateful to know that she wasn't alone and it really was like you said so fast but like just said I mean all of it in in a matter of minutes but so much changed in just a matter of minutes it was really incredible. And her, yeah, I do give her family a lot of uh, uh, gratitude for them being so supportive of me because of course they knew that I had just been through something too. And it was this really crazy embrace, this moment. And, you know, I think the fact that Jane also was so sad, so not wanting this to be happening, but then to have that end moment where it's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to there is no option here now. Yeah. And she really did have sort of a calm release at the end, which I felt was her final Acceptance. Piece. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen this too with your work. And I, I think a lot about like, what, what have I learned in the past several years doing this? One of the things I've learned that I think has impacted me the most is that love doesn't die. Mm-hmm. The person might, right? And, but that relationship doesn't even die. I was listening to your story and how after your father passed, you still talk to him every day. <laughs> yeah. That oh, didn't yeah. change. You know, you were still having conversations with him. I'm sure you still do. Yeah. I'm sure you always will. I have a really great picture of my dad in my office and his head is kind of right near me. And it, the picture is so pierced. It looks like he's looking right at me. And I will just glance over my shoulder and be like, hey, you know. Cause yeah, I, did you, know, you see I, that today? Yes, wow. exactly. Right? You just have this conversation. And it, it's. I, I think that's one of the most beautiful things I've, I've seen with this is that, gosh, you might miss the heck out of that person and want to hug their neck. But they're still there. They're still, love doesn't die. Energy doesn't die, right? It's still there. The relationship is still there. And that's that's the grace that we get to carry with us. Yeah. And I think sometimes like what I find at the hospital or even when I'm with people who have, are passing is sometimes it's not as much that they're afraid of what's next for them or passing. It's that fear of missing out. They don't want to miss yes. out on everything that's going to happen. And Absolutely. I, I just, that's the part that I think, you know, as I've raised my kids, you know, you get to each milestone and you're like, okay, well, at least I got to see that. Like, I'm, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky I got to be here for, for that, but I, I really want to be here for the next thing. And, yeah. um, and I think that's the, probably the hardest part is that, you know, 
everything's going to continue on after you pass and I want to be here for it. And you, you want to be there for it. And then also like when you lose somebody, you think the world should just stop. Mm -hmm. It should just be because you're grieving so much, right? Like everything should just stop. And the next day you check your mail and there's a bill there. Like this this (laughs) doesn't happen today. Like I'm grieving. And one of my favorite things about being a doula is helping the dying put together either like letters or playlists or little notes or things because their biggest thing, like I said earlier, it's not about the regrets they have. It's they want to know they made an impact. They want to know that they're being remembered and they want the people that they're leaving behind to know that they love them. And so to put together these things at the end of their life of just recently, I did a recipe book with a grandmother. Oh, my gosh. And we, we like hand wrote all of her recipes. And then after she passed, we used some of her shirts to make aprons and shared those with her recipes with the family at the end. To me, like that's where love doesn't die, right? right. Like, there's this gift you can do. And like you said, you have that fear of missing out. And in a way, they still get to be at that next Christmas dinner or the next family dinner. And even if they don't get to be there in person, they still feel like they're part of it. And that's so important for not only the one who's dying because they don't want to be forgotten. They don't want to miss out on anything. And they don't – It's for the people who are still loving them, they still get to love them and be there. Right. And there's just this balance of how do we figure out how to continue to love them. I think I love what you said about um, encouraging people who are, are able to um, write a letter or do a recording or those kinds of things. Because I think, again, a lot of people are um, not wanting to accept what's inevitable, what's actually happening, and they miss the moment. They miss that opportunity. Yeah. I, I know for my dad, he didn't write anything out like that for us. But what's interesting is he was handwriting. He had been a firefighter, and uh, he was very much into disaster preparedness. And he was handwriting a disaster preparedness manual, and he wanted my mom to be typing it out. Um, but, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was making sense at the end, and, sure. but he still felt like he had something to share. And then he had some audio recordings of it. So I have this cassette tape, and I've kept this old Walkman so that every now and then I can listen to hear his voice. And it's not about me, and it's not about, it's about disasters. But it's interesting to hear his voice and to look at his handwriting. Mm-hmm. And then we actually, uh, my mom had an old Yahtzee game that my dad loved Yahtzee. And we, not that long ago, she pulled it out and there was my dad's Yahtzee scorecard in this box because she just had never, yeah, it was just at the bottom. Isn't that great? It was so interesting. And I thought these little things, and if, if you can accept what's coming or happening and it doesn't have to be a lot and maybe even a less is more in a way, mm-hmm. I think that's really uh, powerful thing and can mean so much later, you know, and you don't know when later. Somebody might not really need it for a year or two years or 10 years and suddenly they just need something. And if it's there. I tell all my friends and family, if you have voicemails from people that you love on your phone, keep them. Mm. Keep one from everybody that you love. Because someday you're just going to want to listen to that voice again, even if it's like your husband saying, hey, don't forget to pick up green onions from the grocery store. You get to hear your husband say, pick up green onions from the grocery store. And I think about that all the time. Like I always keep at least one voicemail from people that I love. And I know it probably sounds morbid for people who are in the non-death world. But because I live in that world, I think all the time, if this is the last time that I hear that voice, I want to keep it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely love that. And I, I think a lot of people can't can't get there. <laughs> I think that that's uh, tricky for people. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that when you live with death all the time, like you probably see this too with your work, that 
I live with gratitude in a different way than I used to. Mm-hmm. Things just mean a little bit more, right? Like I said, even like my voicemails about green onions mean the world to me. <laughs> but you, <laughs> you just live a little bit with more, a little bit more gratitude for every little thing because you can see how quick it goes away. Right. You know, on that note, what I found that being on my or on our own um, is that I think it made me more independent, and it also made me realize that we are all individuals and we will be okay on our own. And I think that's something that I tried to do with my kids is to sort of raise them in a way that they are their own person and not emotionally reliant on me so that if I'm suddenly not here, they will be okay. They'll be sad, but they'll be okay. And you have to be in charge of your own decisions and in charge of your own happiness because if you're tying it to somebody completely, it will be very hard to have your independent life. And I think that probably came from that. You know, when I, I was 17, I left for nursing school. I moved to California. I've been very sort of independent. My mom and I are extremely close. But it's like I said, with the kids, it's like I feel like I wanted to get them to certain milestones. But yeah. not in a morbid way, but I feel like they would be okay, you know. Um, right, right. And that's been my mission is to just be like, you know, sort of lining things up. Like if something happened... I would want them to ha continue to have a full life, and I wouldn't want them paralyzed by grief. And I can't control that. It's going to be them that control that for themselves. But I think that's something that I get nervous when I see people that are you know, almost paralyzed. And it's like, you are still an individual person. And kind of as you said, you're going to take that person's memory with you on your next adventure. You're here still, and you must- but you're still here. You must yeah. find a way- to take that person with you and keep living. It's so hard to do. It's very hard to do. And everybody has their own journey. And I think that's the other part is that we can't tell anybody how to feel. We can't, you know, some stuff you're just going to figure it out in hindsight, looking back like, like I did. You know, it's like we're, we're always on this journey and we're reflecting and learning. And as we talked about at the start, it's, you know, you did the best you could at the time you were. Now you know more. Now you might do different, you know, and, but I do think it's really important to just for your own self is to keep hold of your individuality and recognizing that you, you will carry on. And the person who's passing wants you to carry on. They want Absolutely. you to be your best self and they want to go with you. What do you feel like you've learned between what you've gone through with your own father's early passing and also with with being with others at end of life, what, what would you like people to know? I think what I really would like is for people to recognize that as um, scared as we might be of end of life, that we, we must embrace it. And the word simmer comes to mind, but like simmer in it and just sort of be in it, especially in that last period of life. It's such a gift to have that time. So many people probably even listening to this maybe didn't get that chance because something was very abrupt. But when there's time and you have time to move through accepting what's happening, there's such a magical moment where you can just sort of be with somebody and you don't even need to be talking about anything. You're just together, peaceful in that moment, and there is no timeline. There just is. And I uh, it's a weird place that is such a special, brief, brief moment in our life that if you can get there and be there and do that. 
But then on the other hand, if that doesn't happen, you can't, as we say, sort of can't beat yourself up about that either. So, I mean, it is very special and important if you can be there. If the moment has come and gone and you weren't there, that's okay too. And hopefully, in, as we've talked about in a hospital setting, you know, as a nurse, that's sacred, as you said. I, I've been with many, many, many people at that end of life, and there is something so special being with somebody holding their hand and, and kind of reassuring them and letting them know. And then to know yourself that you will be okay as an individual on the other side. I've learned a lot about self-forgiveness in this, going through all of this. Yeah, I think a lot of what you said really resonates with a lot of things that I, I sit with daily is be gentle with yourself. We're all doing the best we can. We, our hearts might be breaking. We might handle things differently today than we did then. If you couldn't be there in the moment, your last moment with somebody isn't what defines your love for them or your relationship with them. It's all the other moments. It's all those other little touches and giggles and this. It's not that last day. So if you can't be there with them on that last day, it's okay to let that go and know that they're okay and know that hands were held by a gentle nurse like you or another, that they're not alone. And if you didn't weren't there, it's okay. Forgive yourself. Be gentle. It's all about all the love you had way before that, all those other moments. That's what matters. That's so And if you have somebody in your life who is at end of life, and needs to talk, let them talk. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if you don't get it, just listen, be present, love them, let them talk. Don't be worried about saying the wrong thing. Just be there. Just be there. But most of all, just, just love. That's what it comes down to. You don't have to be perfect at that moment. You don't have to say the perfect thing. And it's okay to grieve in whatever way you grieve. Everybody grieves differently. There's no linear way of doing it. There's no roadmap. Right. Just love. Wow. I just thank you for your um, amazing role that you've taken on. I am sure you have helped so many people. And I just, I loved your comment about, you know, sometimes needing a tour guide when you're new to something. And for many people, it will be new. And understanding that and accepting that, I think you you're perfect for this job. And I, I can imagine you've helped you've helped me too today. This has been really, really special and I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk with me. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you for for sharing what you do and thank you for sharing your dad with us. I feel like for a little bitty bit we got to love him too through your eyes and thank you for sharing him with us. Thank you. Everybody's talking about it And it's the music Coming soon to take us home Laser lights Sapping from my fingers Open door Windows rattle Well that is almost all For today's episode folks Thank you so much To Angela Shook And Barbara Todd For sharing with such open hearts. I've been fascinated by some of these experiments we've been doing, having recorded conversations about the stories. Be sure to let us know how you feel about them. 
You might not have known that Risk is on Reddit. There's a whole sub over there dedicated to discussing Risk stories. You just join r slash Risk Podcast and jump in the conversation. You can also do that at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. Meanwhile, for our Patreon patrons, there's a new bonus story out this week from Jill Chrissy. Here's a little bit of what that sounds like. I was walking to the bathroom and I could smell something foul coming from the kitchen. Not again. So I went in there. I don't care. I put my nose in a little ass before. You can find that and so many more bonus stories at patreon.com slash risk. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, that'll about do it, folks. Keep an eye on Thursday when we're going to roll out something completely different. Funny stuff number three with Jillian Welsh and Rich Monahan. We're loving these purely funny episodes we're compiling now. And you can find all those special series episodes at risk-show.com slash special series. But that's Thursday. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Quiet.